This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. I'm Jeff Guy. Today I want to talk about weaning from mechanical ventilation, or properly, uh, or some more proper, is liberating people from mechanical ventilators. There was a study done in Europe some years ago that showed that 50%, 50% of people who inadvertently self-extubated, only 50% of them required reintubation. When you first look at a study like that, you think, Gee, when I'm called to the bedside of somebody who extubates, I should really pause prior to reintubating them, and that would be accurate. But the other side of that statistic is that about half of those patients, 50%, didn't need to be ventilated the day that they self-extubated, which is an alarming statistic that half the patients are on ventilators, don't need to be there. Certainly not on the mechanical ventilator. When we think about respiratory failure mechanical ventilators, they're really a center stone of any uh, modern surgical intensive care unit. Patients with traumatic brain injuries, recovering from surgery, ARDS, from sepsis, pneumonia. In fact, the lung is the most, uh, uh, the lung is the organ most commonly affected with organ dysfunction or organ failure in a, in any modern intensive care unit. In the traditional sense, weaning from a mechanical ventilator, a term which I'm not very fond of, really is defined as the process of abruptly or gradually, with, gradually withdrawing the mechanical ventilator. An editorial came out in the New England Journal of Medicine several years ago, and it suggested that we remove that term weaning from mechanical ventilator and instead use the word liberate from the mechanical ventilator. And that uh, editorial came out and basically said or implied that our methods of removing patients from uh, the ventilator were essentially inappropriately. Two large multicenter uh, trials, one by Esteban, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1996, and the other by Bouchard, published in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine in 1994, demonstrated that mechanical ventilation can be discontinued abruptly in approximately 75% of the mechanically ventilated patients whose underlying cause of respiratory failure has improved or been resolved. And it's in those remaining 25% of patients who require the slow, progressive wean from mechanical ventilation. The weaning from mechanical ventilation really entails two processes. One is the discontinuation of the mechanical ventilation provided by the ventilator, and the second is removal of any artificial airways. When you think about the second item, just removal of the airways, certainly there are patients that come to mind who have normal lung parenchyma, normal lung function, but require mechanical ventilator assistance because of either a depressed neurostatus, like a patient with traumatic brain injury, or a burn patient who has a significant upper airway edema, secondary inhalation injury. In the past, we've had some very rigid weaning parameters that have uh, indicated that a patient is ready to resume spontaneous breathing. And these were tests of simple lung function and pulmonary mechanics. And these are, are pretty um, common sense that a patient's saturation should be greater than 92%, excuse me, uh, greater than 90% with an FiO2 of 40% or less. The patient should be able to generate an inspiratory force exceeding 20 centimeters of water. That's typically called the NIF or the negative inspiratory force. And the patient ha should have a spontaneous vital capacity of at least twice the total volume. Now, what does that mean, a vital capacity of twice the total volume? Well, your total volume is, is the amount of air that you move, the amount of gas you move in and out on normal breath, and say, maybe say 500 cc's of breath. Vital capacity is the maximal amount that a patient can move in and out. So you have your total volume. And your vital capacity will be, your uh, and on top of that, your inspiratory capacity and your expiratory reserve volume. So the classic weaning parameters are inspiratory force greater than minus or greater than 20 centimeters of water, a total volume greater than 5 cc's per kilo, a vital capacity 
of at least twice your total volume, so at least 10 cc's per kilo, and that's during spontaneous breathing. A minute ventilation, about 1 liter per 10 kilograms per minute, and a saturation uh, greater than 90 on an FiO2 of less than 40%. Now, people have called into question how valid these are. Typically, since these uh, initial studies were performed on young, healthy trauma patients, and as you know, our population is getting older, and often they're not young, healthy trauma patients that are uh, on mechanical ventilators. Several studies have shown that a direct method of assessing the readiness to maintain spontaneous breathing is simply to initiate a trial of unassisted breathing. Once a patient is able to breathe spontaneously, then you have to make the judgment regarding whether the endotracheal tube needs to be removed. And you should certainly make the decision about removal of the endotracheal tube after consultation with the nursing staff and the respiratory therapist. You really want to know, can the patient protect their own airway? What's their secretions like? How often is nursing or respiratory therapy having to suction the patient? What's the character of those uh, secretions? Is the neurological status adequate for the patient to cooperate with pulmonary toilet? Um, one of my professors used to say that if, don't extubate the patient if they don't have the sparkle sign. Anesthesiologists will often uh, talk about the benefit of a patient being able to pick their head up off of a pillow, being it as an indicator of a cooperative and neurologically um, uh, uh, helpful patient. Uh, Wes Ely, um, uh, who is a colleague of mine here at Vanderbilt, he, he works in the medical intensive care unit, published a uh, paper in the New England Journal of Medicine several years ago, and he demonstrated that a protocol of weaning is superior to physician-directed uh, decision-making at the bedside. Basically, they established a, a flow diagram uh, protocol and compared that to physicians making independent rounds and making uh, basically as-needed uh, ventilator orders. They enrolled 300 patients, all on mechanical ventilators. The patients were in medical or non-surgical cardiac ICUs, and the patients were randomized either to the control trial, which the treatment group was weaned using a two-step process of daily screening by a respiratory care practitioner, followed by spontaneous breathing trials when recovery was sufficient to pass the daily screen. They found that the removal of mechanical ventilators two days earlier in the protocol-directed group. Earlier we mentioned about some of the weaning uh, uh, parameters used to assess whether the patient's ready to make for mechanical ventilation. There's also another one that we won't go into much detail, but it's uh, basically known as the rapid shallow breathing index. And that is where you put a patient on T-piece, and for the first minute they're on T-piece, you count their respiratory rate. That would be their frequency. And the rapid shallow breathing index is basically the frequency over the measured tidal volume. And by looking at pre-test, post-test uh, uh, changes in, in these different ratios, uh, clinicians can predict how successful a patient may be uh, upon removal of the mechanical ventilator. Once a patient's been considered ready to be weaned or liberated from the ventilator, the best method to assess whether the patient is able to breathe on his or her own is to form a trial of spontaneous breathing. Dr. Ely demonstrated that immediate extubation after successful trials of spontaneous breathing uh, expedited the weaning and reduced the duration of mechanical ventilation as compared to the more gradual discontinuation of the ventilator support. So what he was saying is that once the patient passes their spontaneous breathing trial, immediate extubation is warranted and will get patients off the ventilator, obviously, more quickly. Several studies have also demonstrated that a 60 to 80% of mechanically ventilated patients can be successfully extubated after passing a trial of spontaneous breathing. So how do we do this trial of spontaneous breathing? Well, there's really 
several different ways to do this. Pressure support, continuous positive airway pressure, and T-piece trials are the most common methods used to test the readiness to be liberated from the ventilator. Several randomized trials have tried to determine which is the best method for getting people off the ventilator. Jones and colleagues were really the first to try to uh, do a head-to-head -head comparison of these different uh, spontaneous trials. and He published this in Chess in 1991. They compared continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, of 5 and T-piece in a group of 106 mechanically ventilated patients who went a one-hour trial of spontaneous breathing. And no difference in percentage of patients failing extubation was found. So in summary, Jones took patients with CPAP, took patients with T-piece, and they were both equally efficacious. Now, some would argue that the endotracheal tube poses a resistance to, to work of breathing, a resistance to airflow. And this is why we talked about pressure support already, that people will dial in pressure support to overcome the work of breathing of the endotracheal tube. Often people will use 5 to 8 centimeters of water uh, of pressure support to offset this imposed load by the endotracheal tube. So Esteban, in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, 1997, set out to... Uh, uh, trial weaning of uh, pressure support ventilation to T-piece. And he took patients on T-piece and patients on 7 centimeters of uh, pressure support and found no observed difference in the patients who remained extubated for 48 hours. Um, that was 63% in the patient, 63% of the group in the T-piece group and 70% in the patients assigned to pressure support. The duration of spontaneous breathing trial has been uh, set at two hours in most studies, but one prospective multi-center randomized trial of 526 patients found that trials of spontaneous breathing for 30 minutes or 120 minutes were equivalent in identifying patients who could tolerate extubation and that patients had reintubation rates of approximately 13% at 48 hours regardless of the duration of tube trial. So basically, uh, the historical element of giving people spontaneous breathing trials for two hours, the data would support that you're just as um, you're doing just as well at doing that at 30 minutes and not having to do the whole two-hour weaning trial. So what do you do about the patients who we extubate and they fail um, the first attempt at? Uh, excuse me, they don't fail the extubation, but they fail their first attempt at weaning. Well, I'll often call these trials and they just haven't passed the trial. Perhaps that's politically correct speech, but I wouldn't, know this. I wouldn't go so far to say that they failed. They just aren't ready to succeed. When a weaning attempt is not successful, it usually indicates not a failure on the patient, perhaps a failure on us as the physicians, because really it's, an, it, it's indicating an incomplete resolution of the illness that precipitated the need for the ventilator or perhaps the development of a new problem. All too often, a patient will file a spontaneous, or fail of a spontaneous breathing trial, and we'll just say, oh, well, we'll just go back to what we were doing, and we'll try again tomorrow. Really, when a patient fails a spontaneous breathing trial, we should push a reset button. Go back, reevaluate the patient, and see if there's anything that we're not taking care of that's contributing to this patient not succeeding the spontaneous weaning trial. Look at the x-rays or development of a new infiltrate. If you're treating a pneumonia, has the pneumonia developed a resistance and now is not clinically responding? Is the patient's volume status too wet? Perhaps we should diurese the patient. Is the patient have an ileus or some abdominal distension that's preventing diaphragm movement and perhaps making the patient's work of breathing more difficult? Go back, reassess, and see if there's anything that we can do to tweak the patient to make them more ready to succeed their spontaneous breathing trial. Failure to wean from a ventilator is usually multifactorial. It usually um, isn't attributed just to one singular thing. We can break down 
the reasons why people um, fail the weaning trial into things that increase the load of work on the respiratory mechanics and factors that result in a decreased neuromuscular competence. Okay, so the muscles are weak. So things that increase load and things that make us weak. Well, things that increase load, things that increase the resistance of, uh, of breathing, things like bronchospasm, airway edema, secretions, upper airway obstruction, obstructive sleep apnea. Is there a fold or a kink in the endotracheal tube? Is it an endotracheal tube all encrusted with nasty secretions? Is the ventilator circuit creating resistance? You can have increase in the chest wall. Uh, resistances, things like pleural effusions, a pneumothorax, flail chest, obesity, ascites, abdominal distension pushing up on the diaphragm, hyperinflation, you know, alveolar edema as we talked about, infections, atelectasis. Some of the things that decrease uh, our, our neuromuscular competence or our strength in breathing are things that will decrease our drive, the narcotics, drug overdose, uh, a brain lesion, traumatic brain injury, the hypothyroid. A starvation, malnutrition, a metabolic alkalosis, and, and with compensation, uh, electrolyte disorders, myop uh, myopathies, uh, sepsis, and drugs, that ever-confounding uh, polyneuropathy of critical illness, uh, neuromuscular blockers. Clearly, the patient's paralyzed. They're not going to breathe very well. But uh, certainly you have uh, weakness associated with those. And, and clearly people who are on aminoglycosides and uh, neuromuscular blockers, uh, things like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Somebody's a uh, trauma patient, you need to be thinking about phrenic nerve injuries and spinal cord lesions will certainly contribute as well. Hyperinflation is a common problem in patients with COPD. We talked about this in one of our podcasts about PEEP and complications of PEEP. But hyperinflation certainly increases the work of breathing uh, creating auto-peep, but uh, that also puts the muscles uh, of both the intercostals and the diaphragm in very unfavorable and unflattering positions. Uh, the uh, diaphragm can be flattened out, and this increases its radius of the curvature, and according to the law of Laplace, um, you'll see a decrease in the pressure-draining capacity uh, of the diaphragm uh, when it's flattened. So if you're taking care of a patient with COPD, be very mindful of the uh, element of auto-peep, uh, or intrinsic peep as we also call it, um, and uh, creating a barrier for mechanical ventilation. Um, the other thing you need to think about is with uh, different types of assisted ventilation. It's really a um, misperception that when somebody is on an assist mode of ventilation that they're really being rested. The inspiratory muscles do not stop contracting once the ventilator has been triggered uh, with assisted ventilation. Uh, therefore, the ventilator support should not be considered synonymous with respiratory rest. When the, the settings are not quite optimal, um, the patient's active work may be even greater than that required for spontaneous chest inflation when the patient's not mechanically, uh, mechanically ventilated. A mode of ventilation that provides inadequate respiratory muscle rest is likely to delay rather than facilitate weaning, and therefore careful adjustments of the ventilator settings is necessary to minimize um, um, and to max, excuse me, is therefore um, necessary to minimize uh, the respiratory work. Uh, trigger sensitivity and inspiratory flow rates are factors that primarily determine the patient's work of breathing uh, during mechanical ventilation as well. And we talked about trigger sensitivity before in there when we're talking about intrinsic PEEP in another podcast, that if a patient's having uh, auto-PEEP or intrinsic PEEP, and uh, the sensitivity um, may be set at 2, but it may require significant uh, draw on the trigger in order to get the ventilator to cycle, and that increases the work of breathing.
There's been discussion in the literature about what type of triggering mechanism uh, will help patients, whether we have pressure triggers or flow triggers in helping patients uh, get liberated from the ventilator. A number of studies in patients with COPD have shown that flow triggering um, decreases the work of breathing in comparison with pressure triggering uh, during continuous positive airway or SIMV ventilation. It's typically pressure uh, triggering, uh, which most ICUs sent their ventilators on. But other studies have, have gone back and refuted that and showed that there's really no difference um, in uh, either uh, pressure or flow triggering. The other thing you want to do is look at the actual plumbing of the ventilator circuit. Uh, as far as there are any kinks or plugs in the endotracheal tube, they're going to increase work of breathing or make the flow non-laminar. Um, one thing to consider are these uh, now very popular uh, HMEs or heat, or heat moisture exchangers that we see attached to endotracheal tubes. Basically, they look like a little sponge attached to the ventilator circuit, and they're supposed to retain moisture and heat. Um, these HMEs uh, increase the resistance of flow and add a substantial amount of dead space when compared with the heated uh, humidifiers or cascade systems that are usually attached to the ventilators. Although in many patients, the, the added dead space with these HMEs is, is really trivial and, and really is not likely to affect the weaning trial. In a patient who's sick um, and coming off a ventilator after protracted illness, um, they do add dead space and resistance and should be uh, considered in a patient who's difficult to wean. If a patient's been unsuccessful in a weaning trial, gradual withdrawal from a mechanical ventilator can be attempted while factors responsible for the ventilatory dependence are corrected. These are the pneumonias, the pulmonary edemas, perhaps the, the CNS injury. The most common methods of discontinuing mechanical ventilator are SIMV, pressure support, and T-tube. Two well-designed randomized studies have compared uh, these uh, different methods. Brochart uh, studied 456 medical and surgical patients being considered for weaning. 347 patients, or 76%, were successfully extubated after a single two-hour T-piece trial. The remaining 109 who failed at initial trial spontaneous breathing were randomized to be weaned by really one of three strategies. Their T-piece trials of increasing duration until two hours could be tolerated, SIMV with its uh, attempted reductions of two to four breaths per minute twice a day uh, until they got down to a baseline rate of four breaths per minute, or pressure support weans of two to four centimeters uh, twice a day until they got to a baseline pressure support of eight. So uh, in summary, they did either uh, TPs trials until your patient was able to tolerate two hours, uh, wean the SIMV rate in one group down to a baseline rate of four, and the other was wean the pressure support until they were down to a baseline pressure support of eight. Patients randomized with three strategies which are similar in their age, their disease, the severity of their illness, and so forth. There was no difference in the duration of weaning between the T-piece and SIMV groups, but pressure support led to significantly shorter durations of weaning compared to the combined TPs and the SIMV groups. Basically looking at 5.7 days for the pressure support weans and roughly 9.3 days for the TPs and SIMV weans. Esteban um, did a, and I quoted this paper earlier, but did a similar study with, they had the 546 medical and surgical patients. In that study, you'll recall 416 patients or 76 patients were successfully extubated on their first day uh, of weaning after a TPs trial. Then 130 patients who failed were randomized to either undergo weaning by following strategies, either once-a-day T-piece trial, two or more T-piece uh, or CPAP trials each day as tolerated, pressure support with attempts at reduction of 2 to 4 centimeters at least twice a day, 
and SIMV with attempts at reduction by two or four at least twice a day. So again, we're looking at T-piece weans, pressure support weans, and SIMV weans. Patients assigned to the four groups were similar with regard to the demographic characteristics, security of illness, all the other things. The weaning success rate was significantly better with the once daily and multiple T trials than with pressure support and SIMV. Pressure support was not superior to SIMV. The medium duration of weaning was five days for the SIMV, four days for pressure support, and three days for T-piece trials. So in that case, the T-piece trials were superior to the pressure support. When you look at these two studies, there's two conclusions that need to be taken away from it. First is the pace of weaning really depends on the manner in which the technique is applied. And second, that SIMV is the least efficient technique of weaning. When regards to pressure support, intermittent T-tube trials, you know, a clear superiority of one technique over another really hasn't been established. I will tell you that my own personal preference, T-piece is sometimes difficult to do in a mechanical uh, ventilator. Um, some modes of uh, some ventilators, like the Puritan Bennett's, have a, uh, a mode called flow by, which is very much like T-piece, um, and the patient's still attached to the ventilator and have all the benefits of the ventilator alarms. Some ventilators don't have this mode, and you have to do T-piece just with the regular corrugated uh, oxygen tubing, and the patient isn't on a ventilator. You really don't have an assessment of the patient's tidal volume, their frequency, or their minute ventilation. Um, and when you're using pressure support, the patient's still attached to the ventilator. You're getting the benefit of all the alarms, which, in my opinion, uh, perhaps adds an element of safety that you don't have in just st straight-up standard uh, T-piece weans. What's the role of non-invasive ventilation? We clearly know that in a patient who is experiencing respiratory distress or respiratory failure and they have COPD, well, really non-invasive ventilation is really your first line of therapy. The, those studies have shown that patients who are rescued with non-invasive ventilation have a lower morbidity and mortality than patients who go straight to uh, invasive ventilation than in the tracheal tube. But what about coming off a ventilator? What's the role of non-invasive ventilation there? There are several uh, uh, randomized trials that look at this. One by NAVA, who was in Annals of Internal Medicine back in 1998. They took 50 COPD patients who failed T-tube trial after about 36 to 48 hours of mechanical ventilation, and they were um, randomized to either immediate extubation with non-invasive uh, ventilation uh, via face mask uh, and a standard ventilator or, or CPAP by an endotracheal tube. So... They, let's look at that again. The summary is, is that they failed their T-piece trial, and if they failed either, imagine doing this. Um, this took a lot of intestinal fortitude. Uh, they either just yanked in the tracheal tube and put the patient right on non-invasive ventilation. In the other group, they put back on CPAP. Both groups underwent trials of spontaneous breathing at least twice a day in reduction in the pressure support level of 2 to 4 centimeters as tolerated an attempt to discontinue mechanical ventilation completely. Compared to patients who were weaned while intubated, the group that was weaned with non-invasive ventilation had a low rate of nosocomial pneumonia, 0 versus 28%, and a significantly higher weaning rate at 60 days, 88 versus 68%, and a significantly lower 60-day mortality rate, 8 versus 28%. So in this study, non-invasive ventilation was clearly superior. Now, you may not be uh, familiar with non-invasive ventilation. 
Um, basically, it's ventilating. If you are ventilating somebody with a pressure support through an endotracheal tube, you can do it with a face mask. Um, some of the new Siemens sends the servo eyes, for instance, when you turn the ventilator on, it says invasive ventilation or non-invasive ventilation. And most ventilators you can do this with um, quite easily uh, is uh, extubate the patient and put them on a face mask and hook them back up to pressure support on the ventilator. Um, there are things like biphasic positive airway pressure or BiPAP machines, which some people are perhaps less comfortable with because they don't have as much familiarity to them uh, as using a standard mechanical ventilator. There was another study by Geralt, and this was in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, um, and they looked at 33 patients with chronic respiratory failure. Okay, and this is chronic, not acute. I, you know, I deal mostly with people who have acute respiratory failure. Um, and these people failed a two-hour T-piece weaning trial, spontaneous breathing. They were randomized either extubation and non-invasive or conventional pressure support, and they found no differences between the two groups with respect to clinical and functional characteristics. We are seeing increased um, articles in the literature that are, are taking the construct of uh, extubating patients uh, very aggressively and going straight to non-invasive ventilation. Uh, I have several colleagues in, in neurointensive care unit that are, are doing this kind of modality. Um, as somebody who works in a burn ICU, it's a little bit more difficult in patients who may have burns to their face. The patient may not tolerate um, being placed on a tight face mask to uh, tolerate the non-invasive ventilation. So in summary, when we talk about weaning people from mechanical ventilators, let's change our, our, our terminology. We need, to, um, we need to liberate people from mechanical ventilators. Large numbers of patients who are mechanically ventilated don't need to be ventilated. Uh, we know that if a patient trial passes their spontaneous breathing trial, they should be extubated promptly. Um, perhaps as soon as possible, and Wes Ely's data clearly supports that. We also have evidence that two-hour spontaneous breathing trials are not necessary. Those people who had 30-minute trials versus 120-minute trials, there was no difference in those groups as well. Some of this, the more traditional um, uh, weaning parameters that were set forth um, uh, perhaps you know, 10, 15 years ago, those were done in young healthy trauma patients. Those are your NIFs of minus 20, uh, but you know, though that we don't use that data as much as perhaps we should, uh, it doesn't negate it. We should still be looking at patients' vital capacities, their tidal volume, their minute ventilation. We should be asking the nurses and the respiratory therapists, what's the nature of the secretions? How often are we suctioning them? But always, always, always uh, be mindful that we want to get people off the ventilators as quickly as possible. This is Jeff Guy. This is the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. Make sure you check out the website. If you have any questions, we're at www.burndoc.com.